Welcome to International Marxist Radio, the official podcast of the International Marxist Tendency, Marxist.com. Join us every single week for Marxist news, theory, and analysis. Hello and welcome back to a special episode of International Marxist Radio. I have to say, I didn't expect to be in the recording chair again. In case you're wondering, the new podcast, The Spectre of Communism, is still in the works. Don't worry, that will be coming soon. However, there's an important date that we needed to commemorate today. It's exactly 50 years since the coup in Chile by Pinochet, which overthrew the democratically elected socialist uh, Salvador Allende and resulted in the establishment of a brutal military hunter that exacted horrible reparations against the Chilean socialists, workers' movements, and masses more widely. And we are very fortunate to have with us Carlos Serpa Malatz, who is a member of the International Marxist Tendency, active with our group in Chile, uh, Corrente Marxista Internacional. So, Carlos, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank, thank you so much for having me. We wanted to record this episode because the Chilean coup of 1973 is such a momentous date in the revolutionary calendar. It's a very dark day in the history of the left, but it's also full of lessons that we can apply to the class struggle in Chile, Latin America, and throughout the world. Uh, I'll waste little more time, but I very quickly want to make mention of some sad news. Uh, John Keenan, who you will know if you've watched a very good film, Ne Passeran, which is about a group of workers at a Rolls-Royce factory in Scotland who refused to work on uh, airplane parts for warplanes that were to be used by the Chilean regime after the coup has passed away as of last Friday at the age of 83. I just wanted to make note of the international solidarity displayed by the Rolls-Royce workers and to recommend the film because it's very good and very inspiring. So solidarity with John and his family. Now, Carlos, um, let's get into the backgrounds of this historical event. So let's start with the election of Allende uh, at the head of the Popular Unity Coalition in the elections of 1970. What sort of a country was Chile at the time? What were the conditions in Chile? And what sort of political and economic and social situation were Allende and Popular Unity inheriting? The, the government of Allende, he inherited a very heated situation coming from the, the previous government of the Christian Democrat, Frei Montalva. Uh, so just to, to remember, in 1970, when, when Allende wins the, the elections, he obtains 36%, uh, which was not an absolute ma- majority, but because the vote of the right wing was divided he between the Christian Democrats and the, and, and the conservative right wing, this allowed him to win. And he had run before several times actually three times before uh, uh, this this election. And in 1964, he lost. He lost just, uh, and he obtained a similar 
share of the vote. But uh, on, on this time, the, the Christian Democrat in 1964 did, did get a, a, a 56% of the vote. In, in the past 50 years, you can say between 1920 and 1970, it went to a process of, of urbanization, of a very accelerated urbanization. For, like r- rural population, for example, went from 2 million uh, in 1920, when they were around 50% of the populations, to be in 1970, uh, the 29% of the population with 2.8 millions. And and then the 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 urban population went from two millions to be seven million. So they were already a big majority uh, of society. And uh, this what it did is to challenge the traditional landed oligarchy, what we call, uh, particularly in, in Chile, the power of the latifundios. It is a whole social institution where where these big landlords they mobilize the electoral vote of this serve of their of the peasants in this uh in in their land so it was a very oppressive situation for them and this just started more or less to be to be challenged by the growth of the of the urban middle classes but also by the industrial and, and mining working class working class and here is where, in this context, is where the Christian democracy uh, was created, was funded in 1957 by by social Christian groups and splits from the conservative parties. And 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 their slogan when they win the elections in 1964 is "Revolution in Liberty." Their their objective was to cut off the the growth of the workers' party. So they were selling this watered-down revolution, revolution in liberty. And of course, the CIA also had this this objective, and they financed the electoral campaign of the Christian democracy in, 19, in 1964. Uh, now, let's say that the, the government of the Christian Democrats did carry away some limited reforms, an agrarian reform that nonetheless the, the people thought it was carried away very slowly because it actually only only accomplished one third of its objectives um which amounted to about 15 percent of, of productive land and then they also the partial nationalization of copper which they call chilenization uh, basically about just 50 percent plus one of the shares uh, in the mining companies so this this instead of bringing solutions to these uh, profound problems of, of, of in Chilean society, it just uh, instilled more desire for actual and profound changes, and and you, you can see that this is expressed in, in rural strikes. In, in 1965, there were only over a hundred, but when Allende in 1970. Uh, gets in office, there were already 1,500. And the land occupations went, went from only about a dozen in 1965. They were already almost 500 in 1970. So at the moment, you can see that at the moment Allende gets in office, there is a big pressure from the peasantry, a very acute 
radicalization of the of the peasant masses. Uh, there was also a general mood of radicalization in in the cities. In the previous decade, in the sixties, more than two thirds of, of of the strikes were illegal strikes, and uh, and and in number they went up from being seven hundred in nineteen sixty five to be over a thousand by the moment uh, by by nineteen seventy the year Allende gets in in office. So he does. We, we can say the, the the situation they they inherit is of uh, on the one hand massive dist- distrust for the reform that the Christian Democrats carried away, but also massive illusions for for the the, the coalition that that Salvador Allende uh, brought to to power. And let's talk a bit more about Allende, because he's a figure who, throughout much of the world, the left reformists look to with a huge amount of sentimentality and respect. He's, I think, one of Jeremy Corbyn's favourite politicians, for example. But what kind of a politician um, was Allende? What were his defining personal and political characteristics? Yeah, he's a very well-known figure internationally, and uh, it's almost as is his his main characteristic as a as a person is defined by the way he died, which was very very spectacular, mm. very dramatic, and I think it was Garcia Marquez, uh, a writer who who explained this image very well, because in that in that tragic moment. Of, of death, of his death, uh, you you can see in a nutshell what 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 was at stake. In a sense, he died alone, and it is still disputed if either he committed suicide or if he was assassinated in 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 the fighting, because he committed suicide apparently with a with a rifle with an AK, which is a very uncomfortable way of. Putting, pointing that gun towards your face when you actually have a proper uh, gun in your in your hip. So he died alone. He died alone, resisting. He let his personal guard leave uh, to save their lives. And at the very moment, he decided to die alone, defending a constitution that no one else cared about. Not to, uh, not to, uh, and more importantly, the armed forces didn't care about he was a very so he was a convinced democrat you can give him that uh, he was a reformist leader that built a, a very successful parliamentary career over uh, over two or three decades and uh, you can say he, he he's a founder he was a founder of the socialist party in the 30s he was a, a student of medicine uh, in the late 20s and he he formed part of a radical group of a militant group uh, during the times of a dictatorship the dictatorship of carlos carlos ibanez uh, another dictatorship uh, there was uh, down in chile and uh, uh, during those years 
there was already a degeneration, political degeneration taking place in the communist parties around the world uh, in respect to to the to the USSR. Basically, the there was a saying in Chile. They said that when in it rains in Moscow, the Chilean communist uh, takes out their umbrella. <laughs> so they were following the the lead of of the Russian Communist Party of the Soviet Union of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Sometimes with uh, very often with with terrible results. But around this time in 1933, the Socialist Party was formed by by different forces, very di- diverse forces. Some of them ascribing to Marxism, but opposed to the the Stalinist and others more like with an anti-communist feeling I got to say uh, Allende was part of the of the Marxist and, and he had this background this uh, he carried this background uh, of being an activist in the student movement he was a uh, as I mentioned he became a doctor he, he was a student of, of medicine and he was he had a very uh, uh, successful career Already, already at 28 years old in 1937, he was elected deputy by the Communist Party. Then in 1939, he was Minister of Health. Uh, and then in the in the later years, uh, the strategy of Popular Front took place in in Chile, basically seeking the alliance of the Socialist Party and the Communist Party. And Allende was like the only figure that could more or less reconcile uh, these parties that were, in most of the cases, competing forces and clashing with each other in the electoral and and and, and union movement. So then you can see that he he built a very a professional career as a politician, as a very successful parliamentary politician. And uh, over over a couple of decades, and he was a candidate uh, several times, three times, as I mentioned, uh, in the in the Popular Front. It was literally called Popular Popular Front, uh, and uh, he had illusions that this institutional uh, way of uh, winning power through elections was was a way to achieve socialism he was convinced and he knew very well the the situation of the poor of the working class in chile and i gotta say it, he was uh he was convinced that he wanted to change and he wanted to break the power of the rich he was very devoted to to this parliamentary road to socialism he was a convinced democrat he was a reformist although he wasn't a reformist like we think of these days. He was a reformist, maybe with capital letters. He actually carried away re- uh, nationalizations and agrarian reform. It wasn't just your 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 local politician putting out a program for dental care. He was uh, actually at the head of a coalition of big. Uh, workers' parties of hundreds of thousands of members with traditions going going back decades. So, uh, to do justice to him, I, I said that. But at the end of the day, this uh, 
care he had towards not upsetting the bourgeois institutions led led to defeat. Yes, I think that's a fair summary. To be honest, looking at the state of the so-called reformists today, offering dental care would be a step forward. These days, all they seem to offer is cuts. So in 1970, off the back of a big ferment amongst the working class, a big advance of the class struggle, uh, popular unity is elected. And you mentioned that Allende wasn't full of hot air. He really did seek to carry out serious reforms. So what were the accomplishments of popular unity in government? What kinds of reforms did they carry out or try to carry out? And perhaps more importantly, what sort of mistakes did they make in power? Yes, that's a that's a good question. He did, the, the program of the popular unity did carry out very profound changes uh, for, for, for the most downtrodden, for the poor, for the working masses in Chile. These, these are reforms that are actually unprecedented for the whole history of Chile and even, uh, I may say, of Latin America. The program limited the wages of state officials to uh, only 20 times the minimum salary. Before that, the gap was uh, even more dramatic. And today, I'm sure uh, it is even more dramatic than ever. Yes, many many hundreds of times or thousands of times, exactly. no doubt. He dissolved the mobile guard that I mentioned earlier. This unit of the police whose task was to suppress strikes, to repress workers, to beat up people, basically. He did dissolve that group, although he didn't really challenge in any other sense the structures of the Almer forces. And we will talk more about this uh, after, for sure. And the most important is the nationalization of copper, of course, uh, which was owned by by in, uh, multinationals, uh, the most famous, the Anaconda company. And uh, this was voted unanimously on Congress, even with the support of the right wing. They also accelerated, you can say, the agrarian reform started by Frey Montalva in 1967. Uh, by the time, uh, there were, there is, it is calculated that there were over 5,000 latifundia uh, in Chile. This, and uh, during the popular unity government, uh, over 4,000 of these were expropriated uh, of this latifundia. Uh, so you can say that in in reality, latifundia was uh, disappeared, uh, did, did disappear from, from, from agriculture and a new agriculture took place. Now, this agrarian reform had many other problems. For example, the peasants that were given land then will find themselves having trouble finding machinery, finding finding seeds, finding any type of economic support to actually start over uh, production. But 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 in fact, it did attack the interest of the big landed oligarchy, and this is this is very important. Other measures were called the forty measures, which were part of the campaign for his candidacy. And the most famous one includes 
the the milk, the half a liter of milk for every kid. Uh, and this is the most uh, remarkable, but it, there were also, uh, it, it also included lunch, it also included breakfast in general, and uh, medical services free for, for, for children. In 1970, at the beginning of the government, uh, a very important publishing house uh, went bankrupt. It was called Zigzag. And they then the state took over this this company, but put it under the administration of its workers. Uh, and it was called Kimantu. And it's still up to now the biggest, the largest uh, publishing effort ever made in Chile. Uh, over, a, over a million books were sold in the streets. By, and the, the objective of the time was that they shouldn't cost more than a pack of cigarettes. So they were considered to be accessible to the masses. Uh, funny enough, they did uh, publish the history of the Russian Revolution by Trotsky, uh, at least 8,000 uh, units of this. Although, yeah, it did have some internal problems. It, it says that the Soviet Union, through its diplomacy, called Agenda and told him not, not to allow this. And he didn't interfere. Because he said that the, it was an out, even though it was a factory taken by the state, the administration was autonomous from them, and they could decide what the what they will publish. They also interestingly published the this famous John Reed book, Ten Days That Shook the World. So the fact is that they published many other novels uh, of uh, of Latin American literature, etc. And it is said never in the history of this country there have been such much access to culture and to books, to reading. And then it also unleashed a tremendous energy from, from the youth through voluntary work. Uh, people like young people will go teach people to read. Uh, other people will go uh, carry the campaign of vaccination. In the old build or help build housing, etc. So this personal experience of someone who goes through 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 the experience of teaching someone to read, someone who learns to read uh, through the living of a of a revolution taking place where the masses are for the first time the most the, the most uh, downtrodden masses for the first time they have access to these things to culture to having housing to having a uh, secure milk to having secure lunch uh, this totally changes the, uh, the, the the your life and that's why up to now you see so much nostalgia uh, towards towards the, the socialist government and then as i mentioned he as they nationalized uh, copper, but also nationalized other important parts of the economy, like uh, steel, coal, the production of nitrates, uh, a partial nationalization of the banks, uh, textile, uh, telecommunications, the most important, the, the ITT, uh, and a, just a partial also nationalization of, of, of the distrib distribution sector. And this had to be managed by an area of the government which was called the social property area or for short 
the the social area. It comprised around a hundred of uh, monopolistic companies, and the workers themselves will, will carry this initiative even further. Uh, at some point, there were almost 400 companies that were occupied by the workers, uh, that companies that were not in the original plan. Because when you go, again, through this life experience of seeing that uh, companies are being nationalized, books are being produced for the needs of the people, textiles uh, are being produced for the needs of the people. It is said that in certain textile companies, production, production doubled. Uh, the most famous in the Yarur company, where also the workers said that for the first time they had bed sheets. Imagine working all your life uh, in a textile company and you don't even have bed sheets yourselves. So these are, are uh, very significant experiences in, in your personal life. And uh, when you're seeing that these changes are going through the country, you also want to take part of it and you don't stick to the plant that the government has for this or only that company to be included in the nationalized plant economy. You also have your own clash with your bosses. You also have had experiences of previous strikes, of, of previous previous struggles, and you also want to have the your, your workplace uh, included and be part of, of this revolution that is happening in the country. And uh, so let's say, yeah, it, this there was a massive display of energy. The, the, the reforms that the government put forward uh, unleashed this massive display of energy in the countryside, in the factories, in the, in the working class neighborhoods. And uh, more than often, as I explained, the, the masses overflow or overwhelm the limits of the program of the popular unity. This is what they call a revolution from, from below that is overwhelming the revolution from above uh, that were limited to the program, to, to the points of the program of the popular unity. Can we also talk, as I said, about the problems, about the errors that laid the road to ruin, as we saw tragically in September 1973? Yes, absolutely. The problem is that the, the, the program of the popular unity uh, was proposing basically a gradual, an institutional, a pacific way to socialism. It was, it was even called the Chilean uh, way to, to socialism, a particular way that we do things. And this is because it was supposing first the, that the Chilean political system was stable. And this is what's very specific of Chile in the context of Latin America at the time. The, they were saying that people will say the Chile, Chile, Chileans are the English of Latin America because of their stable political system. You can see how supposedly uh, the supposedly most stable political systems can can turn into their opposite. And uh, this was the 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 perspective that that the pro, the popular unity parties have for for the country that it, the armed forces will remain democratic that the bourgeoisie was a 
democratic bourgeoisie, uh, and in this, they, it proved wrong. As we will see, this national bourgeoisie started sabotaging the government, uh, financed by, by the CIA, financed by imperialism, and it really came to a head in October 1972. Uh, up to now, the opposition was hope, yeah, was launching a campaign of communication, of, of opposition in the media, uh, sabotaging the economy here and there, organizing strikes, but they still had a certain illusion that they could break the spine of the government through electoral means, but the government just kept growing in support. As I explained, it was just uh, growing in support in the, uh, among the masses. Uh, so they decided that they needed to, to go in a general offensive against the government, which is known as the uh, truck drivers stoppage, um, which was a strike, let's let's say, organized by the bosses' association and financed by imperialism. Yeah, a reactionary. Yeah, strike. it's a funny word to use a strike because they, the the bosses don't work. So it's basically a paralysis. They will they will close. They will bar the doors or the factories. They will put the the trucks to rest. So there isn't any distribution of foods, of basic goods, of fuel, etc. And this really upset um, uh, the government. This really put the uh, the situation in a in a critical uh, point. And here is when you you start seeing the limits of the program. And in the other hand, you see the revolutionary masses taking. Uh, protagonism in the situation. This is what we call a revolution. Is the influx of the masses in history is taking matters in the in their own hands, and this is truly truly what we saw. Uh, the workers organized themselves in cordones industriales, which the translation is industrial belts, but it doesn't refer just to the how industries are located geographically. It meant it, it, it was a organization that the workers created around that time that were more or less parallel to the trade unions. And it was, of, of course, uh, aut autonomous from the government. Its purpose was to defend the government against the opposition, against the bosses' strike. But in its, in its structure, in its organization, in its aims, was autonomous uh, from the government. And this is truly remarkable. It, it is, uh, we say, it is the it is the highest point of a revolution. It was an embryo of dual power. It could have developed into in universal uh, understanding we we know as the Soviets, as workers' councils that direct production, that direct distribution, that can organize self-defense, that eventually can be the backbone of a workers' state. This this didn't happen in Chile for well for lack of time the the the, the reaction organized the coup but also because of the 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 Communist Party in particular and Allende curtail the development of these organizations curtail the impulse of the masses towards taking power in every occasion. What happened in October 1972 is that. Because the cordones or started organizing production, because the cordones, every factory that was 
left abandoned by the bosses, they will occupy it and make it produce. The government will call this a battle of production. And uh, the workers will do extra shifts to to help uh, the economy. Uh, This was, of course, an illusion because overall, the the program of partial nationalizations uh, was still allowing the bourgeoisie to control important and key uh, parts of the economy from which they could from where they could launch these these offenses uh, uh, and sabotage the government so as long as the nationalizations were partial as long as the they were taking uh, half-hearted measures uh, it doesn't matter how many extra shifts you work if you don't have a, a radical transformation in the economy if you incre- if you don't actually increase productivity if you don't transform as we say uh, the relations of production and you and you break with capitalism but they were not they were the the, the aim of the government was not this it was actually to limit this independent uh, energy uh, of the masses they and this was in the factories but uh, women or in working class neighborhoods, uh, women were organizing distribution in what was known as juntas de abastecimiento y precio, which is supply and price committees. It was grassroots organization. They were democratic organizations uh, organized by in the neighborhoods that because the opposition was hoarding goods basically they were hoarding sugar toilet paper basic goods that that we all need in our daily life uh and they will blame the government of its uh, of a bad administration of the economy for the lack of these goods and the fact was the that these goods were being hoarded and they were being uh, kept in, in in different storage. And these organizations, mainly composed of women, they will go and find this storage and manage the, the, the distribution of these goods among, among the people. Now, the, this initiative of the masses uh, defeated the bosses' offensive. And at the end of the month, after a month, uh, the government, what it, what Allende decided to do to end the conflict was to put together a civ- civic military cabinet, a cabinet composed of militaries and civilians. And this, as we say, is a slap in the face <laughs> for the workers. They had already won that conflict against reaction. And then the government, what it does, it puts workers' representatives from their main t- trade unions in cabinet and alongside military men in, in, in other ministries. So you confuse the independence of working class organization of trade unions with the government, which you, of course, uh, support and want to defend against reaction. But then you put them alongside militaries and I think we all know how how this story ended with the militaries. 
So what actually happened on that fateful day and on the lead up to it? Uh, how did Pinochet, at the head of the military hunter, manage to seize power? And what was the role of foreign imperialism as well in assisting Pinochet? And what were the immediate consequences for not just Allende and the socialist movement and the communist party and the labor movement, but also the Chilean masses more broadly? Yes, Pinochet took part in the conspiracy just a few weeks before. To be fair, it was the main plotters were in the Navy. Uh, the Navy, it is famously and traditionally an aristocratic wing of the armed forces, the most aristocratic, with most uh, uh, profound hierarchy, with a most uh, drastic and a strict hierarchy between officers and the rest of the of the, of the common sailors and the it was common sailors that first noticed that the officers were plotting they could hear because uh, some of them will uh, serve the food in a fancy dinner for officers and they will overhear the conversations also the officers themselves were telling the troop about the need to overthrow this Marxist government, this terrorist government, etc. So there was a group of sailors in particular, of at least 80 sailors, uh, divided among different battleships, divided among different regiments who who knew about the coup and they tried to, about, about the coup plotters, and they wanted to tell Allende, they wanted to tell the parties of government uh, about what's going on. And the fact is that Allende didn't really hear them. Then the sailors had a plan developed by themselves to stop the coup. They said, if the in the case of a coup, they were to use the battleships, we will refuse and we will take them to high seas. So it was more or less a reactive plan. It wasn't an offensive plan. It was just to put uh, put them out of use, put the battleships out of use. And uh, at the same time, they were there was another group that was trying to seek an alliance or an understanding with the leftist parties. And these sailors, they were not members of political parties, many of them. Some of them were, part, were, were close to the socialists, but let's say that they were professional sailors uh, in the best sense of the word. They were mechanics, electricians, uh, working class people, you gotta say, which is common of the Navy. Members of the Navy are often closer to the working class uh, because of the nature of their work. And uh, so they had an interest in defending the government against reaction and they tried to to get in contact with the leaders, at least of the of the leftist parties, mainly of the Socialist Party and the Mapu, which was a split of the Christian Democrats, uh, a left split, and the Mir, which was a revolutionary left party uh, of a couple thousand members, um, and these meetings uh, apparently the government or the intelligence services 
got wind of these meetings and they arrested the sailors and accused them of sedition, of insurrection, of rebellion, and tortured them for weeks. Some of them will be in prison for years after, the, even during the dictatorship. Um, and this was a critical moment, probably the most delicate moment, uh, just a few weeks before the coup, because it was a moment where Allende could have shown the rank and file soldier, the rank and file sailor, that they should and must act in defense of the government. But he left them alone. He left them to be tortured, and he said, I cannot intervene with, mili uh, with military justice. Uh, and I think this was among other things that we discussed before about the economy, about the partial nationalizations uh, that were determinant for 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 the socialist government. This was also determinant. The fact that they will not encourage the troop to defend the government, and in, mainly that they will not have a general prog program of democratization of the armed forces. Now, what was, as I mentioned, it was the, the main coup plotters were in the Navy. And there is an operation that the, the United States practices uh, every year and now, which is called the Operation UNITAS, uh, where there is military gains, it's military training, military exercise among battleships, and there were apparently under the guise, we know now, under the guise of this uh, military exercise, they were practicing military communication. Um, they were practicing secret codes with the Chilean Navy to carry the coup. And this is important because as everyone knew that the Navy officers were the most hot-headed reactionaries as everyone knew that they were the main coup plotters that they were uh, that they had ties with with fascist gangs with fascist groups uh, naturally what the coup plotters decided to do was to start the coup in Valparaíso which is the main port city they decided that the coup must start very early in the morning at 4 a.m 5 a.m and and take control of the port this with the help of the the American uh, battleships that were in place, American cruisers. And uh, and at that point, the Allende still trusted Pinochet as a constitutionalist military man. He still trusted, and he was actually calling a first thing in the morning when he got news from the coup in Valparaíso, he starts calling Pinochet, who wouldn't answer, of course, because he, he was busy carrying himself the coup. But the government had a plan, or let's say the general staff had a plan in case of insurrection, supposedly to defend the government. They had uh, devised uh, to mobilize the troops uh, in order to de to defend the government in case of a uh, eventuality, supposedly by mobilizing the militaries in the streets, they will go to uh, repress this coup attempt. But they were only taking complete control of the situation. 
uh, and this is the the role of that the army had in Santiago. So, the army played uh, an important role, or the officers of the army played an important role in this in this stage, especially because the months before the government had issued a law, which is was a gun control law which was mainly used against the cordones industriales, against the industrial belts, against advanced workers, against occupied factories, supposedly to find guns. And they couldn't find, they will find two or three guns here, a few sticks, stones, but the workers were not really armed. And uh, and I think this is the main, the, the, the main issue, that there was a clear confrontation between the classes going on and no one was really being prepared for that class confrontation the parties of the government were trying to appease the masses they were calling the slogan of the of the communists was no to the civil war and the civil war was raging upon them uh very very rapidly and uh, and the workers were disarmed not only physically disarmed, as I mentioned, but politically disarmed in the sense that they will, their whole perspectives were wrong uh, with respect to the role that the Almed forces will play during the government because of the role that the national bourgeoisie will play and because of the role that they themselves, the working class, will play in the revolution, which was to be protagonist of this revolution and not the institution, not to defend the institutions uh, of bourgeois democracy. Yes, and I think this question of arming the masses is a very important one. And we saw something quite similar play out in Sudan between 2018 and 2021 at the height of that revolutionary movement the most important question when it came down to it was arming the revolution against the counter-revolution. And I think it's interesting, whenever liberals and so-called Democrats attack communists, they say that we're violent revolutionaries, we have no faith in democracy, and we only want to take power through violent means. But the lessons of Chile go to show us only a matter of 50 years ago that the bourgeois, the ruling class, the landlords, the bosses, the imperialists, they're perfectly happy to trample all over their so-called democracy using force of arms if it means securing their interests, securing their profits and securing their power. It calls to mind something that Alan Woods wrote in a very good article, which we just reshared on Marxist.com on Friday. I'll put a link into the description of this episode. He says, We all want a peaceful change without traumas, but we have also learned something from history, that no ruling class in the whole of history has ever given up its power and privileges without a fight with no holds barred. And I think it's worth emphasizing that in Chile, the masses wanted to fight. My understanding is that the, the working class were basically begging Allende to give them the means to defend themselves, but Allende and the reformists of popular unity were so terrified of the prospect of civil war, as they saw it, that they refused to go down that road. Yes. In fact, just a week before, the 4th of September of 1973, there was a, 
a massive demonstration right in front of the House of Government because it was the anniversary of the election of Allende himself. And the masses, the workers, were the slogans were to they were demanding arms, and it was to close Congress because Congress were the, the parties of the opposition were constantly blocking any initiative uh, for the reforms that the government tried to carry away, and the workers wanted the program they voted for for to to be carried away, and the workers just a week before were, yes, demanding arms and the closing of Congress. They were demanding audacious actions to be taken against the opposition. And it was finally reaction who ended up taking those uh, audacious measures. And in this sense, it is a very special defeat what, what follows. How is it possible that masses that only a week before were mobilized almost a million people marching in the streets of Santiago, of a country of 10 millions, uh, just a week after uh, the Pinochet is able to take control of the whole situation in just a few hours. And I think it's because the government repeatedly demoralized the masses. And this is a situation that we, we often find in history. The working class needs to find the means to defeat counter-revolution, while it will probably have to support and defend a reformist government, a reforming that is actually depriving it of the means to defend it, to defend itself, a government that is actually maybe betraying many of the demands of the workers. That, but this can only be done by a by a tendency that will fight inside the main organizations to put forward uh, drastic measures, audacious measures that the situation required and that the masses were demanding. Unfortunately, and this is the tragedy, I gotta say, of the Chilean revolution, is that there wasn't any revolutionary tendency with enough support among the masses. The revolutionary left was divided among several different parties among several different groupies, groupings inside those parties and they didn't really raise to the occasion to to lead uh, the working class to finally and decidedly defeat counter-revolution and as i intimated earlier the consequences of that failure were borne by the chilean masses starting with the supporters and activists and militants of the Popular Unity and the Socialist Party and the Communist Party, but also much, much broader layers of real and imagined supporters of the Allende government. The figures of people executed and tortured and disappeared, they vary, um, but they're certainly in the tens or even possibly low hundreds of thousands. And I think for me, almost more affecting than the straight statistics of deaths and disappearances is a famous poem written by um, Victor Hara, who was a communist folk singer who was arrested and imprisoned along with thousands of others in the Estadio Chile, the Chile Stadium. And he wrote a poem 
with that title, Estado Chile, while he was imprisoned. And it really conveys the, the horror of the consequences of the victory of the counter-revolution. This is in English, obviously it was written in Spanish originally, so forgive me for that. But it ends, how hard is it to sing when I must sing of horror? Horror which I am living, horror which I am dying. To see myself among so much and so many moments of infinity in which silence and screams are the end of my song. And I think that really speaks to the, not just the fate of the people who suffered as a consequence of Pinochet's victory, but really to the stakes involved when a revolutionary process begins, and to the betrayal implicit in reformism in not being willing to go all the way, because this is what it means. If you're not willing to prosecute a revolutionary process to its end, and the counter-revolution takes initiative, then it unleashes a terror to try and intimidate the masses back into line. Yes, it was it was indeed terrible. The the figures, the official figures, who go from four thousand, uh, for forty thousand uh, people were victims of human rights violations. Uh, at least three thousand were murdered. And over a thousand were are missing. Basically, they were arrested, and we have never found their their bodies. This is the most. Yeah, these are these are the numbers, and but then you need to think of a whole generation of of workers of youth who went through what was the brightest experience of their lives being shut down so so drastically uh and the persecution yeah it was it it, it was brutal uh three central committees of the communist party were uh, executed were were murdered and they are still missing actually so you have one central committee then uh, it is arrested then a second one needs to take over the the task of organizing underground, it is still arrested, and then a third, uh, and this puts and this is the the fate of the of the leaders. But then you have hundreds of thousands of members of these parties trying to first to make sense of how this defeat could have happened. Uh, second, uh, trying to find a way to reinvent themselves to try to. Uh, get out of the country, find a new job, etc. At least a million people escaped the country in the years of the dictatorship. Uh, Not all of them directly for political persecution, but also for the uh, terrible economic conditions that followed. Uh, In the 80s, unemployment uh, went up to even 40% in some marginal areas. Uh, the GDP fell from 15% in the 80s. So this, this yeah, it caused a dramatic change in, in Chile. The agrarian reform, which was so important that it covered between the governments of Frey and Allende over 10 million hectares, uh, at least a third was given back to its original owners. Another third was sold cheaply to new uh, to new private owners. 
basically the big companies, the big capitalists were the only ones able to buy such big amount of land and to make it productive again. Yeah. And the the militaries in, in power, Pinochet and and the others, they were not intellectuals, they were not economists. Uh it took them a couple of years to come up with a workout plan for for the country, an economic plan. And it was a mixture of what is known as the school of the Chicago boys, uh, what is known internationally as neoliberalism, but it's basically a, a brutal expression of capitalism following this uh, historical defeat of the working class uh, in Chile. And uh, they mixed with local conservatives uh, coming uh, that were in Chile. Uh, so they didn't simply recover uh, the position lost by the bourgeoisie and imperialism. So they, they propose a whole new, new, new project. So we can say that what happened around in the dictatorship is that the m- main uh, ideolo- ideological and economic pillars of what Chile is today, they were built there, mainly in what is known as the 1980 constitution. But let's say the constitution of 1980 is only an expression of the power that the ruling class I really achieved by defeating the working class uh, so bloodily and brutally as they did. And up to now, we are still struggling to, to end with the with the legacy of that dictatorship. And I think that now's the time to talk about that legacy in bringing an end to this really interesting discussion. What, if you could summarize it, is the main legacy of the Chilean coup of 1973, not just for Chile and not just even for Latin America, but for the workers' movement all around the world. What should communists listening to this discussion take away from the experience of Chile 50 years ago? Yes, thank you for that question. Um, for all Chileans, it's a moment of of memory, of, of remembrance, of nostalgia, of claiming for justice. But the message I would really like to send is that when we're looking to the past, when we're looking to that experience, we must understand we're also looking to the future. What happened uh, in Chile? The self-organization of the working class, overwhelming the program of a leftist uh, government, of a left reformist government, uh, trying to defend it against reaction, against the influence of imperialism, against against fascist aggression, that is not uh, a question of the past. I think is mostly a question of the present and of and of the future. Right now, in Chile, there is still so much trust uh, on the institutional way to achieve. The, the 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 demands of the working class and uh in 2019 
there was a massive rebellion, uh, a movement of mass insurrection in Chile that was actually calling out all the legacy of the dictatorship, but not only the legacy of the dictatorship, also the 30 years that followed uh, the dictatorship. Uh, pointing to the question that even after the dictatorship ended, the power of the rich is still there oppressing us, is still there exploiting us. And what did the masses do? Because they didn't have fighting trade unions, they didn't have big working class parties as they have in the 70s. They organized uh, working class associations, neighborhood assemblies uh, to to resist uh, repression in 2019. And I think the main lesson in Chile is that the working class can and must direct society in such a situation when uh, the counter-revolution is unleashing its forces in the streets, when it's trying to uh, get to power. Right now in Chile and the whole region, there is calls about the danger of fascism. And I think what we need to pay attention is to the actual relationship of forces. The working class in the region in the past years has gone through uh, massive movements, insurrectionary movements, where they have put together this type of organizations of the working class, self-organizations, and uh, and 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 this is uh, is showing the the path forward, the movement forward. When we think about uh, the defeat of the socialist government of Allende that carried out such important reforms that affected and changed the life of, of millions of people, uh, we see today that we need, we need uh, such reforms, but that the only way to fight for those reforms is organizing for revolution, that we cannot just stick to those reforms that any time any change of government can take away those reforms. We need to understand that today we need those things. Housing, uh, probably I wouldn't go for half a liter of milk this time, but we do, ne we do need to, to break the power of the rich uh, in Chile and, and internationally. And I think the only way to do that is to build a tendency that can fight uh, among the working class, among the youth, and build communism. Well, Carlos, thank you so much for joining us. And once more, because of the importance of this anniversary, we've actually published a series of materials. Last week, we put up two articles um, that analyze the... Chilean coup. One was a retrospective article by Alan Woods called The Lessons of Chile, which I quoted from earlier. And the other was written in the 70s prior to the Chilean coup. It's called Chile, the Threatening Catastrophe. And it's a very interesting article because it anticipates the dangers that existed on the horizon in Chile and it laid out some of the tasks that might have been necessary to avoid the tragic conclusion of that revolution. 
And we'll also be releasing an article written by Carlos, which was originally published in Spanish in our Latin American and Spanish language theoretical journal, America Socialista, to commemorate the 50-year anniversary of the Chilean coup. And of course, we have this podcast. So I will link all those materials in the description. Carlos, once more, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your analysis of this very important event in our revolutionary history. Thank you. And one final reminder that with the exception of this special episode, International Marxist Radio has concluded and the spectre of communism is still coming in not too long. So we'll see you there. All the best and solidarity. That was International Marxist Radio. Thanks for joining us. Tune in again same time next week for more Marxist news, theory and analysis. And if you've been inspired by what you've heard today, get in touch via our website, marxist.com, and find out more about how you can join the international Marxist tendency and fight for revolution where you are. <laughs>